again, what can I control? Well, I'm not sure what the audience of your podcast is, but you control fuck all except what might be. And that I will... love that. You can't you control fuck all but what might be. Well, hello, everybody. Before we get into today's episode, which is a doozy, let's talk about a sponsor, the Woodford Group. Do Monday mornings get you down? Are you feeling unmotivated in your current job? Then it is time for a change. Let the team at the Woodford Group help you find your dream job today. With a focus on senior executive, permanent and temp roles within the HR, business support and customer service industries, the dedicated team will help you find success and satisfaction in your new job. Visit woodfordgroup.com.au today. In 2018, John became a quad amputee after being diagnosed with meningococcal. He was rushed to hospital and placed in an induced coma, which led to sepsis, a heart attack and kidney failure. To save his life, doctors amputated both of his legs and both arms. He and his wife Deborah have faced continuing months of John's recovery and rehabilitation as well as the emotional grieving of what life was and celebrating the positives of what life is now. Episode 73, John Davey and Deborah Underwood. Welcome to One Moment Please, the podcast where our guests take a moment to tell their stories of how they've overcome adversity to achieve success, and you take a moment to tune in, so bring on the inspiration. Beautiful. Hi, guys. Hi. I'm excited about this podcast. You're my first three-way that I've done. I've never had two guests on at once. I'm I'm glad you defined what that meant. (laughs) Well, <laughs> and now we've set the tone. <laughs> we have set the tone. It's pretty standard on this podcast. Um, so yeah, I'm really excited for those that are, well, everyone's listening to this as an as an audio format, so you can't see John. Um, John was diagnosed and had a, a meningococcal diagnosis, and as a result, is a quad amputee. So. We've got both um, John and Deborah here as his, I'm sorry, as his wife, but his wife, Deborah here, <laughs> to sort of speak about that experience. Um, so, yeah, I'm interested to know what life was like prior to the diagnosis. I think life was fairly normal suburban life. We yeah. uh, have a house, um, a garden, everything that needs to be maintained. Um, we both had full-time jobs. Uh, we enjoyed entertaining. Uh, John was the major cook in the relationship. Uh, that worked out very well for me because yep. it's not You're my favourite thing. You like to eat? <laughs> I like to eat. I like to eat his food. You and I both, Deborah. <laughs> <laughs> so um, the world was very different. Um, I would work later I would come home John would have dinner prepared Uh, on weekends we would do what we needed to do we had great family we entertained um, which was fabulous Uh, and it was kind of a nice life and we traveled we were traveling a lot so we were getting to that stage in life that we had the extra finance um, and time to go overseas and that was what we intended our later years and retirement years to be. 
John, where were you working at the time? Because I know that you're the primary cook, but if Deb's coming home later from work, what were you doing? I was sucking off the teeth of the uh, taxpayer. I worked for a federal government department. Oh, God. I was an investigator (laughs) for the Australian Communications and Media Authority. Oh, so so what did that entail? Oh, look, the ACMA do a whole lot of things with regard to spectrum. Okay, so TV, radio, radio communications, everything is on the spectrum somewhere and we sell it, but we also regulate it. So right. there are rules and regulations to go with everything and, and the ACMA also does things with regard to TV and content, etc., etc. I was on a more technical side, not that I was very technical at all, we ran a, a section called Compliance and Field Operations uh, where we would investigate uh, causes of uh, interference to the radio communications or telecommunications network. And depending on uh, what was causing the interference or who was causing the interference, um, we'd step in and uh, at the, the bad end, we'd prosecute through the, uh, the courts. Uh, on the good side, we'd issue warning notices and give them some advice as to how they could behave and be a good corporate citizen. So fairly involved and detailed and office-based, I'm assuming, pre-COVID. Office-based the majority of the time. Look, I I had a shiny badge. We we, uh, served warrants. Oh, God, you had a badge and everything. Look out. Look, it was very exciting. But, yes, for the main, I was (laughs) in in an office, in a desk, um, handling mid- to high-level investigations and also... Uh, receiving and, and, and negotiating complaints from the public, which I worked out sometime later. Um, I'd spent the last 28 years listening to people complain. <laughs> well, we'll get into how the diagnosis changed your out- mindset and outlook on life a little later, but I'm assuming from that statement quite probably quite a lot. Um Talk to me in regards to you living in a really active lifestyle, travelling and, you know, I'm, I don't know what your house was like. You mentioned garden. I don't know if it was two-storey or single-storey, but very independent, obviously. And then you you fell ill. How? What happened? How did you get sick? It was an interesting birthday week. I turned 55 on Monday and on Saturday was put into an induced coma. Somewhere between those two exciting events, uh, I got coughed on or sneezed at. I was not sharing spit with anybody else because that is the way in which the meningococcal disease is transferred from people to people. Uh, Depending on the statistics I may make up, around 5 to 10% of people carry the meningococcal bacteria dormant in the back of their throats, and it doesn't affect them. It doesn't affect anybody. But Five to 10% of people, that's a, that's a huge amount of yeah. the population. Yeah, and um, it doesn't usually affect anybody because it just happens to be if the wrong person is in the wrong place at the wrong time and somebody coughs and I don't know if the immune system was a bit low or what have you, but um, I got sick. Now, having said that, I got sick for half a day. Right. And there was a footy match in there. You'd gone to the footy. I'd been to the football on this Saturday and saw the Mighty Saints draw. Um, Came home. uh, We went out for lunch on the Sunday because it was my birthday. I went to work Monday, Tuesday, Anzac Day, Wednesday off. 
went to work Thursday, came home, cooked dinner, went to bed, woke up at two o'clock Friday morning, shivering, sweating, shaking, felt a familiar feeling, so got myself up, went to the toilet, vomited profusely, and went back to bed and thought, well, whatever that was, I've got rid of it. Mm. And spent Friday at home, which was amazing for me not going to work, um, doing the same thing, rinse and repeat, shivering, cold, hot, sweats, awful. And um, by the late afternoon, or maybe even 7 o'clock, I took myself out of one bed, put myself into another bed, and Miss Debs decided I didn't look right, but what were we going to do? Um, so we rang nurses on call. Mm. Now, That's interesting because most people would go to food poisoning or it's just a, like a flu, uh, you know, like those symptoms are fairly generic in terms of a lot of other and a lot of other things. One of the problems with uh, meningococcal especially, if it's not diagnosed and treated or knocked on the head within 24 hours, um, 10 to 15% of people die Right. within 24 hours. There's different strains. There's meningococcal A and B. Which, which one is worse and which one did you get? They don't know because... Luckily, they gave me the antibody for meningococcal as part of a shitload of drugs they gave me, mm. um, which they said, oh, we've worked out what it is. It's meningococcal, but we've killed it. In fact, we've killed it so bad they couldn't take a sample and test to see which one I had. Right. So that was great. You know, I didn't die. Um, always but, a benefit. Always, always <laughs> a good thing. And, but, you know, in the two-week coma, that they put me in because they weren't sure what effect this shitload of drugs was going to have on me. Um, part of meningococcal, if it doesn't kill you, you're probably likely to also get septicemia. Right. Now, septicemia being blood poisoning, that's the thing that makes you lose your arms and legs. What? You, and obviously you're saying you've got experience and knowledge from a patient point of view and not a doctor's point of view. So I understand that you may not be able to answer this, what causes the septicemia from an endococcal? The bacteria enters the bloodstream. But if they've killed it, if they've killed no, the meningococcal, it was already there. So they've, they've killed the bacteria that was meningococcal that makes your brain swell and your spinal cord swell and all those horrible things. Right. So they got rid of that. I didn't realise that, that was part of the, that's yeah, what happened. It's kind of like, uh, I can't remember the name of the other disease. Meningitis. But, yeah. Yeah. But once the blood is poisoned, septicemia, it's a different thing again. Right. In addition to that, Fiona, what happened was that he was put into the coma and there were a lot of things going on. Um, the ICU nurses at the Knox, Knox Private were, were phenomenal. Um, and he was basically touch and go. I mean, you're not an ICU if you're... Go live. I'm surprised that they had you at Knox and not a public hospital. Well, I had a choice. So once we called nurses, once I'd called nurses on call um, and they talked to him, they rang an ambulance. ambulance straight away, and uh, which was 
was great. I had no idea he was so sick. I offered him to get him a doctor throughout the day, get somebody to come in, yeah. and it was about 10 o'clock at night when I called nurses on call. What I'm... made you go he's really not rock, apart from no, this is needs to run its course? I mean, uh, John said that you thought he didn't look really well. What was it that really made you go something's not right? Well, it was unusual for him to be in bed all day, uh, but when he did um because he had got up to, to sort of watch the football in another room but slept, come back to bed, he said, if I feel this bad tomorrow, you can take me to emergency. I took his temperature, but obviously a home thermometer isn't really as great as you would expect. And uh, so I just took the chance and called nurses on call to just get some advice about what I should do. Uh, they were amazing. They saved his life as far as I'm concerned. That's interesting. I've had mixed things with nurses on calls and whenever I've gone to the hospital, they always go, they always just say to end up at the hospital regardless. Mm-hmm. Why were they so amazing when you called? Uh, very calm, I mm-hmm. think. They talked to me about what John's symptoms have been throughout the day and then that night, uh, well, sorry, and then after I sort of explained the situation, they talked to him and they said, look, he's, we think he's really ill. Uh, so we've called an ambulance, they're on their way. Now, the ambulance guys come in, they were also fantastic. Oh, the ambos are amazing. Yeah, immediate action, just lovely. Um, and um, they gave us a choice of which hospital, Box Hill or Knox. And, um, you know, Knox I've been to before and knew it was, you know, a good, a good hospital, um, had ICU. So an emergency. So we went there. In the end, it was probably the no, it wasn't in the end. It was potentially the wrong choice because it was ten minutes further on than the Box Hill Hospital would have been. But on the other hand, the immediacy of the care and the exceptional care that we both got in emergency and then going through ICU, um, I wouldn't have wanted to be anywhere else, to be honest. That's a good um, advert for them in, in, <laughs> some, in some regards, but uh, it's interesting because my experience with the public versus private is the more acute cases and severe cases always get transferred to the public anyway because they've got more of the research, resources for really acute, serious things, which is why all the car accidents and everything go go there. But So it's great that you had that positive experience with a private hospital with such an acute emergency situation. We were lucky to, uh, at, at Knox, the, there's a rotation of surgeons that go through there and the surgeon that was there also worked at the Alfred ICU. Oh, perfect, yep. Uh, and the nurses, many of them are trained at Alfred. So... You know, there was all that connectivity as well, so it's good. Yeah. I used to do uh, nursing recruitment, so I understand the <laughs> the differences between the two and that it's often... And we're still friends with the ICU nurses. <laughs> yeah, there's often a lot of crossover and they do private because it's, it's better money, so... <laughs> So what was the reality? You've gone into emergency. You've the, Well, the AMBOs have turned up and said, okay, we're going to transfer you. Did they sort of say, we think this is meningococcal? No, no, look, okay. and look, admittedly, that's, by that stage, I was in a, a slight state of delirium. I was in a huge amount of 
general pain. I couldn't say what was hurting, but everything was hurting. Right. That was probably just a swelling. Oh, well, it was, yeah. It was, it was everything. But they, look, and don't get me wrong, there's a little part of me that was very excited about being in the back of an ambulance with lights and sirens. I mean, that was really cool. You know. I wouldn't suggest you take that trip, but you know, <laughs> there was a part of me that hung on to that. That was great. But my understanding was when I got to emergency, they, they looked at me and probed and potted and did lots of tests and turned around and said, you're one sick puppy, but we don't know what it is. Mm. We, 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 we have our, oh, we don't know what it is. So in medical terms, we're going to give you a shitload of drugs. Yeah. We're not sure what effect that'll have. We'd prefer it if you were asleep when we did it, just so, you know, we can care. And again, I thought, fine, give me an anaesthetic, give me all your drugs, I'll wake up in the morning, we'll go home and we'll all laugh how silly it is that we were in such a, you know, a panic about me having a stomachache. Um, again, their, their, their sleep was a coma. Um, so you weren't actually aware that that was what they were talking about? I, I was slightly aware of it all this before, obviously, they put me in the coma. Um, and I was, yeah, whatever. Let's just do what you need to do. Now, what I've been told since then is I, I basically exploded in their uh, emergency room. Every end and orifice was losing all sorts of things. Don't remember that personally. Probably a good thing that you don't. <laughs> Probably not. But um, they didn't know. They did all they could, obviously. Um, and, yeah, killed the meninger cockle. Well done. Um, woke up from the coma and I was alive. Yay. It took three days for me to be convinced by Deborah that I was actually at Knox. I thought for some reason I'd woken up in Sydney. Yeah, don't know what all that was about. Um, drugs. Look, yeah, well, maybe the drugs. I don't know. But uh, after three days of being convinced that I was at Knox, remember when you came to hospital two weeks ago, da-da-da-da, that was kind of, oh, all right. Uh, that's fine. Then I kind of looked down over these couple of days and realised that my my beautiful feet and legs and my arms that I could see through the bandages were black. Right. And that's when they explained that the septicemia had uh, done its job and it, it throws the extremities under the bus. Deborah, what was your experience? So you're an emergency they're saying that we're going to put him into a coma. What was your experience? Are you sort of looking at John? I mean, obviously he's delirious and he's he's unwell. And so what's that conversation as they're saying, we're going to put him into a coma now and give him a whole lot of stuff. We don't know what's wrong with him. Yeah, it was very much about waiting um, initially to stabilise him. Um, I wasn't allowed to spend a lot of time with him. Yeah. Um, and when I did, they'd really kind of knocked him out and he was, you know, pretty sick. Um, about 4 a.m., so it was very, it was hours that I was in there and I couldn't really contact anybody else. So um, 4 a.m. they took him to ICU. The next morning I went in with his brother and uh, we were given the understanding of what was going to go on, that he was going to be put into a coma because he was very ill. Um, we were going out that night and he, uh, John said to me before he was put in the coma, you go. We also got his family, uh, sister and parents to come in and see him. 
Uh, so prior to the coma. Prior to the coma. Okay. Um, yeah, I'm pretty sure that was it. Uh, and then um, they put him under. So I went home and I was getting ready to go out and I called the hospital just to check on him. And the nurse said, he's very sick. And I said, yeah, but what does that mean? And it's only now that I understand if you're in ICU, you are sick. Yeah. You're not there for a holiday. He's really, really sick. I said, tell me what I should do. He said, you should come in. Right. So then my sister joined me um, instead of going out with my family. And uh, we sat with John overnight uh, watching him either live or die. So you were at that stage aware that you're watching him potentially every breath, maybe his last, you were aware that, did they know that the septicemia had kicked in at this point? They had. So you could physically see his limbs going black? No, not at that stage. It was too early. But with the additional drugs that they had him on, you know, blood pressure and all those types of things, all all the internal organs um, locked down to, to conserve energy and therefore the blood flow doesn't go to the extremities as much. Right, so okay. It's like frostbite, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah, so, yeah, watching Live or Die and then for the next, I don't know, two weeks, um, I was there every day and uh, having to tell his kids that night we had to get his daughter or the next day daughter over because we didn't know whether he from South Australia because we didn't know whether he was going to live. She drove overnight with um, two friends to get there. Um, and we, yeah, the family just sat there with him. I, I wouldn't leave. I left. I stayed at the hospital for, I think, five to six days till they could tell me that he wasn't going to die if I left. Fair enough. I didn't I want him yeah. dying alone. Yeah. I was there as well, you know. <laughs> You're probably off in, you know, having lovely dreams under the anesthetic. Oh, ask about that. No, don't. um, (laughs) Look, I I do understand and I actually promote this aspect of it every time I speak of it. And it still gets me. It's it's hard to talk about, but I was I was having a kip. I was I was having a nice sleep while Deborah was going through all of this, and the family and the kids, or whatever. Um, I look back at it. I don't remember a lot about the coma, but they had the worst, and they still have had the worst of what we've gone through. Okay, I lost a couple of appendages. Okay, and I didn't die. But at that moment when I had my heart attack, now if you're going to have a heart attack, be surrounded by surgeons, um, when my kidneys failed, um, again, I was blissfully unaware of all of this. It was Deb who had to do all of this, not by herself, admittedly, but she bore the brunt of the darkest day or days 
and as I said, I was blissfully unaware, dreaming of very, very strange things. And uh, yeah, I, and I awoke. You know, I went from caterpillar to grub. But I, um, I miss the exciting part. So, Deb, you're in the you're in the hospital with his daughter and family members basically saying goodbye and crossing fingers and I don't know if you're religious but potentially praying in terms of John surviving. I didn't know about the heart attacks and the <laughs> so is that happening within the the two week coma? Yeah, that's the joy of septicemia. Right. So just everything has just well as, as we alluded to it, it it, it starts with the extremities. It doesn't mm. send blood to the fingers and toes. It's sending all the good blood to the heart and the brain. Now, after the fingers and toes and arms and legs have been uh, deprived of oxygenated blood for a while, well, they tend to die. But you can actually kind of see it almost or think about it creeping up through the body. The vital organs that aren't the heart and brain also are deprived and they give up the ghost and they caught it I guess well I had a heart attack so my heart was giving away well they brought me back from that and from there I guess that might have been the pinnacle of it you know that's the closest I've been to death um except some of Deborah's cooking and you've got that stage where oh okay now things are settling down and what what is is has happened and they're bringing me out and yeah some days later, they, they brought me out from this coma to our new reality. The thing that I don't understand is if they know that you've got meningococcal because you've responded to that treatment, mm-hmm. why didn't they start treating you for the septus then, knowing that that is a secondary issue that happens they with did. people that have? They did. They, they were pouring shitloads of drugs into me. They, they know, right? I guess, what is happening. Right. But, and what they're trying to do is stop it. So the body was just dealing with everything, even though they were treating it, it was still... Yeah. So, in, well, okay. And I guess if they hadn't given me what they gave me, uh, knowing I had septicemia, I wouldn't be here. You know, mm. So they, they, they did all that they could and then I, I didn't die. There's your gold ring. There were many, many, many drugs happening at the same time, um, dealing with the many, many issues that keep arising and that's the beauty of being in ICU is they're very much and seeing the doctors work um it's very much every day looking at each symptom as it arises and dealing with that you have to go very much through a process of questioning and discussion about what the next move is what what are the risks what are it's fascinating um if you're not totally in it but you know I was different, I think, and have been told I was different in there, where some people would go in and just visit someone in ICU because I was sitting there day and day out. I wanted to know what they were doing, why they were doing it. I could read the instruments. I knew what was going on. Um, it was so intense. Um, I learned so much about <laughs> You had a compressed <laughs> nursing, nursing then, degree. You know, the, ne- the next <laughs> eight months um, that I remember going back to ICU um, 
after one of his amputations and the nurse asked me um, if I'd had any medical experience or I'd worked in medicine because of the questions I was asking or the answers I was giving. I get that too. I'm like, no, because no. of the nursing recruitment, but I, yeah. not as not as in-depth as experience no. as what you've had. <laughs> um, talk to me about that conversation that they had about amputation. Did you Could you see his limbs and then know that that was coming or did they say when they knew that he was sepsis, this is a likely outhood? Like what happened? Yeah, so I knew a, a long time before John. So he, he started getting discoloration while he was still in the coma. When he came out of the coma, it took me a little while, you know, to, to get him oriented as to where he is and what had happened um, and then address the fact that his hands and feet were dying. Um, and that had been explained to me that potentially it would be okay. Initially it might lose a bit of his foot, a bit of his, a few of his fingers. They have to wait for it to to stop spreading, and you don't know where it's going to stop. Delineate. Demarcation. Mm. So basically, what they've got to wait for is the bits of the you of you that are dying, die, and the bits of the you are going to survive, survive. That took a matter of weeks, and the the conversation with regard to amputation was always pretty much there and it was as as deb has said uh, uh, more of a well how much are we going to lose and, and this and they said well we don't know until such time as we reach demarcation we will know but what we've got to do in the meantime is get you strong enough so that we can operate so so, so it was a gradual awareness for you you knew that this was coming hmm. before they had to do it I suppose from a mindset point of view, it's probably better than waking up and having it already done. Oh, m- most definitely. And again, they Matthew couldn't. Have, yeah, they couldn't have done that because I hadn't my bits hadn't stopped dying yet. But also, I wasn't wouldn't have been strong enough to have a, a quadruple amputation um, in the state I was in. So six weeks in ICU at Knox to get my strength up enough to be able to transfer me to another hospital where I could have. Um, dialysis to get my kidneys back in line and build up strength to work out once demarcation had occurred where exactly the chop's going to be. But along with the the kidneys failing, and thankfully they came back and they were quite surprised how how well they came back, Um, we were then moved from renal unit at the Alfred to the... Burns unit. Now, why burns? Because all of John's skin, as part of either the meningococcal sepsis, I can't remember, became um, blistered. Wow. And raw and oozy. Purple welts all over the front of my body. So he then had to be treated as a burns victim, and we had to be extremely careful of. Infection. Infection. Hmm. So we were then in, I can't even remember time frames anymore, six weeks at ICU and then it was... Four weeks in the renal ward, then up to burns to basically try to get my new skin to grow, which it it didn't, 
well, it, it did after a while, but they were still building me up to get ready to, once they'd worked out exactly where they needed to um, amputate, they could. And look, the time came where they said, well, yeah, it stopped, you've stopped dying, your feet, your legs, your arms. Um, we're going to take you off below the elbow. I'd lost both hands. Um, to my chagrin. To What's my, a chagrin? That well, sounds well, to my dismay. Dismay to my unedifying disbelief. I am a failed below knee amputee. They initially decided that they would take me off below the knees, mm -hmm. and that's the best type of amputee to be. You know, you know, you got your you got your knees, your wobbly bits work for you. Um, they took them off below the knee, and while they were in there, looked at it and just went, "You want these are cactus." Misspent youth, a bit of meningococcal, a bit of everything else. So um, when I woke up from that procedure, uh, I had the joy of a very distressed wife, mine, uh, looking down saying, yeah, nah, they're going to go back in. They're going to take you above the knees. The reason we wanted below knees so passionately was because of travel. If you're a below knee amputee, it's much easier to learn to walk. Um, your prosthetics are potentially more comfortable um, because they're, you know, they've got more strength with the knee there. I can't, I can't length, length is strength. strength. Length is strength. With amputations, <laughs> length is strength. Um, and so it was really devastating when we knew it was above knee because we knew that would just be more well, that's not Difficult. what we signed up for. No, it wasn't what we signed up to. I, was I had signs all over his room saying, must save knees. No. <laughs> so. Must be able to walk in European cobbled <laughs> streets. <laughs> uh, that's a good goal to have. It was. It was. It was one of our many. So it was about, I think, I think when John woke up from the coma, I said to him, you know, we can choose to be victims or we can choose to get on with this and just deal with what comes. And that was the way we just dealt with everything from then on. You mentioned that you had signs up saying the cobbled streets need to be able to walk on the cobbled streets. Is that how you sort of tackled everything, having visible goals around you in regards to what you wanted to achieve? Oh, visible goals, maybe. I, I was very much attracted to um, imagine a 14-year-old girl getting some bubble paint out on a bit of plastic and making a heart with a DU loves JD on this bit of placky. That was my touchstone. So we're talking 15 to 17 procedures at the Alfred. And every time they wheeled me back from that and I came out of the anaesthetic, I looked for that sign. The one time it wasn't there was because I was back in ICU because I'd got an infection and I knew I was in the wrong place and this was serious. But little things like that decorated every crevice, every ward that I went to or was delivered to. I woke up to that sign. So, yeah, we... <laughs> We did all sorts of things because we spent an awful long time there. Um, at one point, my, my very creative wife, we decided to go through the seven stages of grief, you know, because of all the death. 
because that was similarly, I, I'm losing parts of my body. They're dead to me, literal dead weight. So she cut out cardboard signs with the seven stages of grief, which we would touch on each, each, each day. Where are you here? Oh, we're back here, are we? We're in denial. We're out there. And, and, and that exercise, you know, we decided early on that we were going to be positive about this. Mm. Everything was just another challenge to get over, around or under. Were well, uh, you offered any mental health support? Yeah. I, look, yes. Within two days of coming out of the coma, I had requested to speak to the um, psychologist there. So you had to request it? Oh, I, I asked for it. I, I knew it was available to me. Okay. So that's, uh, my, that's my point because I find yeah. a lot of people that I speak to, they have to push for it rather than it being offered to oh, them. I never pushed, no. asked and it was provided. But, you know, you, you look at the other way. You wake up from a coma and you've got a psychologist sitting by your bed. Oh, <laughs> my God, I'm in serious trouble, aren't no, I? No, but people can have a conversation with you saying, hey, these services are available to you. Oh, no, I, I probably did have that conversation. Hence, I knew to ask for it. And I kind of explained where my head was. And we talked about a, a bit about my past working life in the last few years and about what I've been through. And he goes, of course you'd be thinking that. Mm. No, nothing wrong with you. You know, that's exactly what you would be thinking, nothing to see here, which was good, the professional telling me that I was normal. I, I made use of that quite often. When I was... <laughs> the, the worst part of coming out of the coma was the doctor looking at my family and saying, well, We've saved him from the heart attack and, uh, look, his kidneys are offline, but, yeah, whatever. But, uh, yeah, the arms and legs, they're going to have to go. But we can tell you that mentally he's exactly where he was before he went into the coma. That was when my mother got really upset. She had hoped that maybe I'd prove <laughs> But uh, No, no. She, I was waiting for their, that. I was waiting for it. <laughs> yeah, they all shook their head and went, oh, God, I really can't be normal. <laughs> Normal's overrated. Um, <laughs> in terms of work, obviously, John, you're in a coma, so you're not working. Deborah, how are you sort of? I, I mean, you've still, got, you've still got bills to pay yeah. and, you know, general life to sort of maintain and um, probably mortgages and bills and mm. utilities to sort of keep on. How are you sort of? I was extremely lucky. So my employer, um, which at the time was Avenard, um, which is a part of Accenture and Microsoft, um, they uh, supported me wholeheartedly. So they gave me extra leave, sick leave, every piece of leave that I could take. Um, there was non-paid leave near the end where I had to take a month for myself um, when John was on the mend. Um, initially I was trying to work from... Uh, the ICU, um, that that was fairly difficult. Um, well, I think also I, overwhelming in terms yeah, of dealing with yeah, everything, yeah. Absolutely. But I had an amazing team um, and a big shout-out out to them. Uh, you know, every, everybody that I knew, people I hadn't seen, they just came around me to support us. Um, and, yeah, absolutely Sorry, those. that's my phone. How unprofessional. <laughs> yeah. How unprofessional. <laughs> um, but absolutely, uh, my, my work was very supportive. And, in fact, you know, after eight months of just being 
home, well, at the hospital most of the time, and home we saved a lot of money. <laughs> <laughs> well, those restaurant meals and everything, and yeah. going to the theatres, you went. <laughs> I'm sure you probably blessing private health insurance for the time you'd spent six oh. weeks or whatever it was at Knox Hospital. I, I felt very sorry for the private health. I never feel sorry for them. (laughs) (laughs) So how long was it that you were in hospital for all up? Just over eight months. So we went in on the 28th of April 2018 and I came home on the 21st of December. What milestones did you have to hit to be able to be sent home and discharged? Because you're, you're a quad amputee. So what are you like, what's the reality now? Well, I had to be able to move. Yeah. After eight months of lying down, well, okay, six months of lying on your back, mm. going through different procedures, da da da. It's, it's amazing how much of your body doesn't work anymore. I could not lift my arms above anything, right? So before I could go to rehab, other than the infections and everything else that were stitching up, I had to get better. Um, I also had to be taught how to move. Because to get out of my bed, which was a big milestone, um, they had to hoist me out of bed and hoist me into a wheelchair and vice versa because I couldn't physically sit up or, or I, I couldn't do anything. So a lot of physiotherapy went into getting my arms to work enough so when I got to rehab, I could actually do thing, you know, do stuff. And I suppose not only just the muscle wastage, I mean, if you've got you've had amputations those ends of your limbs where they've at the amputation sites are sore so pushing off them yeah in any regards to try and sit up would be agony Look, i had some very very good drugs now and one of the problems i don't think it helped extend my stay in hospital but look they gave me my own pain team yeah. whose job was to measure and do whatever it was to pump all these marvelous drugs into me were you ever concerned about getting addicted oh god i welcomed it (laughs) um because i I didn't feel a lot of pain now and look they were doing their job and everything was going swimmingly in in that regard and they did say to me look if it gets if the pain does get a bit much or or, or peaks or whatever tell us we'll tweak and, and away we go and so i did feel a bit of a change in my right stump at one point in time so i said uh yeah can you just tweak it a bit please yeah well three days later after a drug-induced psychosis i was taken out of icu again because i was getting quite violent um we call them the lost weekends because i exercised that form of control twice more with exactly the same results i think i might have been at the limit and then i went over it and um I didn't experience that much pain that I can remember. Oh, certainly if I bumped it or, or this or that, or oh, yeah, that hurts. But I was on some seriously good drugs. What is drug-induced psychosis? Like what are the symptoms? Like, are you aware that is it hallucinations no, or are you just no. out of your, out I'm, of your I'm mind? Out of my, I'm out of my gorn. Right. I... Um, it was the ketamine to start with. Oh. Um, <laughs> sent me into, um, well, a psychosis. I, I was off the planet. I didn't know what I was doing. 
Mm-hmm. I was having dreams of floating over fields of tequila. Of oh, tequila? Yeah, I know. Oh, goodness. That, I hope that, you had that, some that, salt that, and some lemon. Well, maybe that's what I was looking for. <laughs> oh, no, I, I was living inside a pulpy trash novel, imagining all sorts of things and having a religious conversion, a very serious one, in one of my last weekends, um, trying to then uh, convert all of my family to whatever the religion I was. I, I saw God, the Holy Ghost, and Jesus in the blinds, and I talked to them. And and, and it, it, they, it was just I was off my scale. And by the end of those weekends, because probably nobody believed me, I probably got a tad upset and started waking other patients up, and that's when they strapped me down and took me away. <laughs> and... Weaned me off whatever the drugs was. Deborah's shaking her head. So that was they didn't strap you down. There was no padded room that they pop you in. <laughs> no, there were there were some horrific moments, and those were some of the worst moments for me. So yeah, the ketamine. Um, you know, you were seeing ants crawling out of the mouths of the nurses. Oh my goodness! Um, with uh, another drug, which was the worst. Um, if I hadn't. I called the hospital at like 2.15 a.m. because I'd gone home before his he'd come out of surgery. The doctor had said, you know, go. And um, she said, oh, no, he's having a bad night. And I said, is that him in the background? I could hear him shouting. And uh, she said, yeah, he's, he's, you know, really not doing well and he's already made a nurse cry. And I went, <laughs> oh, my God. She said, don't come in, Deb, it's too distressing. So I went, all right, fine. So I stayed there for 15 minutes and got up and went to the hospital. Um, And what I found was a a man who was shouting to get the police because he'd killed his brother. Um, And, you know, we were trying to say, you know, it's not done voices, be quiet, you know, Um, and just hysterical. Um, convinced he had had killed his his brother, and then convinced his parents had committed suicide. Um, in fact, told his daughters while his parents were standing next to them that his parents had committed suicide. Um, just awful. And then he had um, a just a little episode I saw with his eyes, you know. And if I hadn't been there, the the nurses wouldn't have seen it. Um, and because of that episode happening twice more, um, they ended up putting him back into ICU. What um, was the episode? Was it like a seizure thing? Yeah, kind of. It wasn't really evident, though. It was just his eyes flicking to the, the right and then him, you know, black, blacking out kind of. I was calling totally God at that point. <laughs> um, and... Uh, you know, the nurses were doing their thing. They went there watching him. So I saw yeah. this and mm. I, I called them. And then they, you know, did a code blue or whatever they do. They, and everybody well, came running. Yep. Yeah. And, um, and everybody was having a, a look and a chat. And one of the ICU doctors was up there. And while she was there, it happened again. I said, did you see that? And she said, yeah, that's not normal. So that's when they went back. So you have to... The, the the thing about a hospital is the nurses are there to nurse and they have so many people to care for. Yeah, they're not. You know, they, 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 I mean, they I see, I see yeah. you. They're there by you. 
it's yeah. one to one. Yeah, but, yeah. but everywhere else, they've got a ratio of patients that they've got to look mm. after. So, mm. and they were amazing wherever we went. I, I had to highly commend the nurses. You know, we never had a, a bad experience. Um, we were very lucky. But a long term stay doesn't work without having somebody else in that room. And especially with John, because he couldn't use cutlery, so he could be waiting for breakfast for, you know, ages before a nurse came back and have cold toast and cold coffee. Um, now, yeah. that's interesting. Why didn't they have somebody assigned to him as a patient care, like a carer, not a nurse, but a carer yeah. um, from the hospital's point of view? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I was at the Alfred at this point in time. Um, and, and as you said, there's a ratio of nurses or whatever, and they would always make sure that they would assure me that I'll be back in, you know, here's your breakfast, you know, somebody else delivers the breakfast, I'll be back soon to feed you. But then everything, you know, they, they get then, tied up then stuff. their work happens. And then mm. I, I didn't blame any any of them for that. Mm. Um, you know, understaffed, overworked. It's. I don't think we even knew if there was such a thing as a, because mm. we had a lot of, uh, well, a lot of Deborah time, but I had a lot of family and friends who would volunteer to come in and look after me. And it, look, it might have got to the stage where they kind of went, well, you know what? We don't need to save the money. We don't need it. Load off. That's one load off us. Yeah, thank you very much. They never expressed that, but I'd like to think that was the case. Yeah, no. So um, I made sure that there was someone to feed John every night. So if I wasn't there, if I couldn't make it one evening, then a friend or family member would go in and feed him. So I would be there from 10 o'clock till after 7 every day. A little birdie told me that you'd also help other people on the ward as well, Deborah. Yes. She was very good at making beds, fluffing pillows, reassuring. Holding hands. When you are there for a longer stay, you probably meet and get to know other patients that are there for a longer stay. What was that support and camaraderie like between the other families and other patients? It was, I guess it depends on the type of person you are, but I'm yeah. one of those people who. You're an outgoing the... personality. Yeah. <laughs> I just know that they're not alone. You know, yeah. it can be overwhelming. And I saw that often, you know, in ICU, saw a man and his son, um, you know, who, whose wife had died um, of sepsis. And, you know, all I did was give him a hug. Yeah, that's awful for you knowing that your husband's dealing with that and their yeah. family members has passed away. But but I, he was alive. Mm. Um, and then when we were in the, the burns unit or with the amputees, um, you know, uh, you, you just offer the support and you know, your understanding of what's going on and help them get settled into the hospital. And and once you tell somebody that, oh, no, my husband's had four limbs, they go, oh, well, obviously losing half my leg because I fell off a motorcycle isn't so bad. Um, in terms of some of the people that I've looked after, they, you know, they just needed a little bit of a hand and it didn't, you know, it's, it's not hard to get a glass of water or stroke a head or help somebody or get a nurse if you need to. 
Yeah, and, and I'd like to think that, you know, we, we were there for an awful long time, or months anyway. And the, the longer we were there, the more people we saw coming through. Mm. And we've got this kind of understanding. We know how the place runs. We know what button to press when you needed something, as opposed to, no, 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 don't make a fuss now. It's not important enough. But, look, go down there and turn around the room and you can find what you're looking for. You, you come back and make the bet because this is what we do. And as we said, the place runs really, really well when there's family and volunteers there to help because the nurses just are overworked. Mm-hmm. Not their fault. No. So when we see somebody or saw somebody who was kind of new to this and you could see the wide-eyed fear from, you know, not the patient necessarily but his family or support team, it was nice to watch somebody, even if it is your own wife, uh, give this reassuring nod or just a hint or, you know, or a hug because I'd like to think the longer they stayed in hospital, they would learn the same lesson Mm. and they would carry on our good work after we we went. Whether it happened or not, I don't know, but it's just... It's, it's like anything, once you know the system and you are that type of person, you're happy to give hints to other people who are working their way through the same system. And that's what we did. We had, the other thing is that, you know, it is that additional support, as you asked. So um, there was another girl whose mother ended up losing her four limbs as well. Um, yeah, below her, she was crying. <laughs> Um, and you know, she came in she and easy. That was the <laughs> she came in and so the first thing you know I said is does she want me to talk to her you know and she was the same thing she was staying at the hospital and um, I just gave some hints about you know brightening the room you know having messages from family and friends all that type of thing and and sort of gave her a, a, a view. Both John and um, this lady were moved to Caulfield um, Rehabilitation around the same time, um, which is, again, a bit of a shock after being at the Alfred and, and even as the shock was from ICU to, to the Alfred. Rehab, yeah. Uh, but the rehab, it was, you know. It was built in 1919. <laughs> terribly, it's in terribly need, terrible need of a, an uplift. But. She and I were then, as we they they both were getting more independent, um, juggling. So if I couldn't make it, Renee would go and visit John. Or if she wasn't able to get in, you know, and I had some time, I might wash her mum's hair. So it was just a way of helping each other and knowing that somebody was checking. So then, you know, I could text and say, no, your mum's fine. I've checked in on her, you know. It was good. You know, and you, God, you get institutionalised, aren't you? When I sit there and say, no, you know, it was really nice. We in rehab, we we organised um, Melbourne Cup Day, um, and put in food and drinks for all the the hospital staff and patients, um, and had a little party. But I think it's those little things that sort of keep when you're going through that much trauma and that much sort of time in hospital it's those little things that sort of probably distract you organizing it give you something else to focus on Mm -hmm. and then obviously from a patient point of view it's fun and then something to reflect on 
you know, for the for the weeks afterwards mm. as well. So I think that's from a um, mental health probably thing. It's probably really good. Mm. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. John, in terms of you now going from a, an independent um, person, probably more so head of the family, Deborah, I know you're probably more so head of the family, but we'll let John say that he is. Um, I would never dare. <laughs> how did it? How did you f- cope with the adjustment of now being the reality of? I'm not saying now, but back then getting weighted on really because you, you, as you're sort of learning to sit up and get out of bed, it's sort of... Therein lies the problem. Now, I can speak ad nauseum, quite literally, about mm-hmm. my time in hospital. But to a certain degree, while you are a patient in that situation in hospital, you are merely an observer, okay? Everything. Everything is done for you, mm. with you, sometimes without you. You're, you're proped, you're prodded, you're wiped, you're washed. And when I sat lying down for seven months, now my first sitting up poo was awesome. <laughs> it was a day to celebrate. It's a small victories. Yeah, but, but not for the nurse who still had to wipe me. Mm. You know, so... To a certain degree, while I was going through all of this in hospital, I was just going all through all of this in hospital. Yeah. Okay. There wasn't a lot of time for me to be in charge of anything because I wasn't. Uh, the only thing, and this is what we agreed on post-coma at Knox, the only thing that we could, and this is how I word it now, the only thing that we could possibly control with all that's going on, was our attitude. Everything was just going to be a challenge, another hurdle to get over. What do we have to do next to get to the next stage? What is in store next? What do we need to do? How do I get out of here? That's what we concentrated on. You know, resilience is as simple as attitude. You stand at the fork in the road and you either choose to take things on challenge by challenge by challenge or you go down that other road of being a victim. How do you drill? You do motivational speaking now, don't you? Yeah. How do you um, convey that to somebody to make that choice when they haven't dealt with the enormity of the situation that you have? Well, it doesn't need to be enormous and this is one of the methods I, I use. Can you just speak uh, up a little bit, John? You're a little sorry, bit yeah. um, One of my uh, little life messages now is sweat the small stuff. One day your legs will fall off. If you have an existential crisis in the morning when you can't find that matching sock, what are you going to be like if somebody close to you is close to death? If you go to work and your favourite coffee cup isn't there, oh, what do you do? Now, I'm not suggesting you just go, oh, no, 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 sweat them. Spend that extra minute looking for the sock. Maybe search the dishwasher for your cup. The way in which you handle small things that life throws at you may well be an indication of what happens if something 
big happens. That's interesting because a lot of, you know, the the, the expression is don't sweat the small stuff yeah. and, and people sort of say, you know, brush it off and move on to the next thing. It's not that big a deal. But your message is... Sweat the small stuff proportionately. Okay. okay. Not everything that happens in your life is on the same scale and badly. So that's the key word, proportionately. Yeah, proportionately. Okay. okay. Because, again, if you chuck a tizzy because they've run out of donuts, one day your legs will fall off and how are you going to react to that? Mm. Don't sweat the lack of donuts. But do it in proportion. I don't know. I might sweat if I don't have coffee, though, John. <laughs> might be a bit of a... Well, you know, <laughs> but that is first world problem. And we live in the first world. Oh, I don't world. know if it is a first world problem. Yeah, no, it's only a Fiona world. problem. <laughs> but I understand I think, what you... Sorry, Deborah. I think that it's about just breaking down any problem. The largesse of it can be frightening. There is no doubt. And this is where doctors and nurses are amazing, is that they only deal with what's in front of them. Mm. And that taught me something, taught us something. So what is it that's happening now that we have to deal with? We can, we can deal with what's at your doorstep. Down. Yep. Yeah. But one step at a time. Um, and you sleep better. Why do you sleep better? Is it because you're not focusing on the whole enormity of the situation and so it's a, a I've got through that obstacle, I've got through that obstacle, so it's the small steps, you know, the how do you eat an elephant, one mouthful at a time adage, you know, that sort of a thing? Or is it is it the fact that, it's, well, I don't know. You tell me. What do you think it is? <laughs> well, I don't know. I didn't sleep very well. Um, <laughs> but I think I think it's more like um, you, you've achieved something. So during this time um, when John was, I think, in the afternoon or might have been moving to rehab, you might recall there was a general who was on the news and he was saying what I learned from being in the army navy is every morning you woke up and you made your bed that was the first thing you did mm -hmm. and he was alluding to mental health because in the army that might be all you achieve all day but you achieved it mm. so from a mental health perspective he said every day get up and make your bed because then you've achieved something for the day and it sets you off right so every morning even though i didn't move much in bed <laughs> i would <clears throat> sorry i would get up and i would make my bed um, just so I could say, well, I, I did something today. But then, John, you're in hospital, so what were you able to do for yourself? Well, I had people who made my bed for me, so I was very comfortable with that. Um, you were yeah. happy flying over your tequila fields. Well, well, well <laughs> yes, yeah, give me those rooms again. Uh, look, again, uh, not a lot because I was, to a great extent, an observer. Mm. Um, but was that frustrating in itself? No. You, I don't know how you did it. Yes, it was frustrating, but then you you kind of work out, you know, don't get too far ahead of yourself, John. But, oh, my God, you'll never drive your 1966 Datsun Roadster again. I've had it for 30 years, and I've just spent that much money on it, and it was perfect. And then after a great drive the one weekend, my legs fell off. But at least you got that drive. Yeah, I got that drive, which I hung on to. But I knew I'd never drive it. I knew I'd had to sell it at some point in time. But what was I going to replace it with? But how did you, like, to me the biggest thing, if I was ever in that situation, and touch wood I'm never in that situation, you make me want to go get a meningococcal vaccine, <laughs> um, is that 
it's that lack of control, like uh, uh, that conscious choice to have to give up any control of the situation because literally you're lying on your back. Like well, not it wasn't able to- a conscious choice to give up control. Look, it, it's a well overused saying: control the things that are in your control. Right? right. So worry about the things that you can control. And to a certain extent, early on in the piece, the only thing I had control of was what was left of my mental state, uh, my mind. We were going to be positive. We are going to get over this next hurdle. We are going to get better enough to go to somewhere else to get better. We, that's the only thing I could control. So that's what I concentrated on. Um, you know, you, you don't choose when you're going to eat or to a certain extent what you're going to eat. And, and, and a lot of the time it was a mind game with the kitchen from Melfred. <laughs> that I'd order this and I'd deliver that. And I knew. And I was toying with me. So, yeah, there were little diversions like that. But, again, I can't control when the surgeons are actually going to get it right after 17 operations and close me up. I can't control that. I can't lie in bed and go, oh, get better, get better. Mm, I can feel the goodness in my stomachs. So you don't worry about that to an extent. You go, again, what can I control? Well, I'm not sure what the audience of your podcast is, but you control fuck all except what might be. And that I will... love that. You can't. You control fuck all but what might be. Yeah, so what might be when I am a real boy again? Now, there are stories about what the doctors were telling me and what I was thinking and where my head went and whatever. Well, one of the things was always going to be I'm going to drive again. I knew there were ways in which you could drive without arms and legs, he thought. What car? What car? Can't drive my dado. So I'm going to have to sell the Datsun and I'm going to buy. So what am I going to buy? And that kept me occupied for a while and I, I learned to use a, um, pencily thing with a rubber end. What do they call it? A, a stylus mm. in my mouth to get my iPhone up, and I was chewing through the data mm-hmm. with regard to cars online, this and the other, and all that's not going to work. So you, you do do things like that, and I watched a lot of football, and St Kilda still didn't win. I've done my bit for the team. What were they doing? Today? <laughs> Did you write to them? I got a card from them. <laughs> oh, did you? My my sister-in-law organised for the... Who's your neighbour? Oh, my neighbour. Which one? Jules. Oh, Jules. Jules organised a, uh, a card signed by all the St Kilda players. That's nice. Shout out to Jules. Yeah. Oh, I know. Thanks, Jules. But um, so the, and little things like that, awesome. So, you know, the really bad TV, the really bad food. You can complain about a lot of things in hospital and yet none of them are in your control. Well, I think that's just a bigger metaphor of life, isn't it? You know, control, stress what? about what you can control. Well, to a certain extent, yes, yeah, sweat the small stuff proportionately. Mm. You know, it is probably something I now recognise more, well, not recognise, I, I, I can see this now. You know, I haven't had the epiphany. I saw God once or twice <laughs> in my dreams, but... I don't Some feel would bored. say that that was just allowing this I the energy play. <laughs> but, you know, I don't think, oh, I've been given a new lease of life. I'm going to go and, 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 and sell the world. Starve the 
or not staff, yeah. feed the starving children of Rwanda. I'm going to do this. I'm going to give my life to... No, no, I don't feel that. But what I do feel or understand is I've got a, a greater clarity of who I am and, sadly, what I was becoming before my legs fell off. What you do know, you mean, what you're becoming? Well, Deborah painted the rosy picture of a beautiful domestic life, you know, backyard and, and, and the home and the travel. And she also put up with a bloke who was getting increasingly fatter, balder, grumpier, um, which after a lot of um, psychology and talking to people who kind of know this thing, I hope, because I paid them, um, I was burning out at work. Yeah. I had done 28 years of listening to people complain. I did not want to see people after I clocked off. I came home and I was happy sitting on the couch drinking wine, watching football or whatever. And, and Deb said, oh, guess what? We're going out to da-da-da with these people. And I'd go, why? I don't want to. But is that burning out or is that just because you're an introvert? Uh, well, no. Because I'm more of an introvert and I'm like that. I don't want to see anyone. <laughs> yeah, no, I've never been accused of being an introvert. Um, I think I am personally deep down inside. Um, but no, I mean, two years before that, it would have been, sure, where are we going? Who are we going with? And, and, the, and the party continues and life so is So it was good. just a yeah. change, changing behaviour. I was changing, but I didn't recognise that. Because mm. I was perfectly happy in my grumpy assholeness. How do you address this grumpy assholeness to him, Deb? Well, sorry. How do you address the grumpy assholeness to him? Oh, I had told him I wasn't particularly fond of him. In fact, his family had said the same thing. He was a really, really grumpy asshole. Grumpy asshole. Mm. Yeah. So it's interesting Maybe you recognise that the though. Out of me. I don't know. <laughs> Well, uh, it's interesting that you recognise that that's where, you, like, after the fact, obviously having gone through that, that's where you're at. Yeah. Oh, look, again, I, I was blind to it at the time and I don't know what might have been mm. if I continued in that vein because, again, I didn't recognise it. I was happy where I was and it wouldn't have and it couldn't have lasted very long. It was not pretty. I think, how long had you been married by the, when this happened? Uh, 14, 15 years. I think it's sort of the definition of sickness and in health, really, in terms of having your loved one go through something so significant. How did you keep yourself motivated, Deb, in regards to getting a, a sense of normality of your life back? Or did you just resign yourself to the fact that it was never going to be as it was? Let's repaint that picture. Um, it's it's never going to be as it was, and I think we're still finding our way through that. Mm. Um, you know, COVID didn't help, to be honest. Um, and being in Melbourne, you're in Melbourne like I am, so. <laughs> <laughs> Had a year off work um, with redundancy, which was frightening because, you know, mm. there was no significant income coming in. Um, and... Uh, you know, thing, things have changed. Um, travel's the one thing the most we've done is travel to Adelaide on a flight, um, though we are going to tackle, tackle Brisbane later on um, and just see how we can manage that. But, you know, uh, even taking a, a car trip, you know, 
we went to Geelong, we went to Mildura, that's really tough because rooms, hotels are fitted for the minimum <laughs> of um, disabled requirement. If at all. If at all. I, I've run places and said, do you have a, um, a, an accessible a room? room? And the response is, well, of course, they're all accessible. They've got doors. Oh, dear. Let's start from the beginning. <laughs> you know, wow. But, look, th those things, again, we're, we're working through. Um, when all is said and done, and, again, this is from purely my perspective, uh, being a, an observer in hospital, uh, Deborah going through the worst of it with regard to all my operations, procedures, close to death experiences and, 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 and drug-fucked malaise. Um, I was sitting back and watching all of this. It wasn't until I got to rehab where I could actually physically do something about me getting better. The more you work, the better, you, the quicker and, and whatever. And, and again, sometimes to my detriment, you know, I would leave myself bleeding uh, in, in the rehab gym because I'd convinced one of my occupational therapists to literally tie me to a um, exercise machine, which I thought was awesome until I went through five layers of the new skin that I'd just grown, you know. So sometimes it didn't work. But the more you put in the rehab, the more you got out. And that was awesome because that's what I had to do to get out. You asked before, what, what was the line in the sand with regard to coming home? Well, it was able to function in such a way that I could be in a chair, I could transfer off in bed, this, that, the other, and I wasn't needed rehab bed anymore, get rid of him. And that was where the real challenges started. Um, and I, I don't think it was pretty for Deb in the first two months because I had come off eight months of being wiped, fed, poked, prodded. I was, maybe you could describe it as slightly needy when I came home because... Deb is rolling, Deb is rolling her eyes. <laughs> well, Deb decided, and, and she should have, and she needed to, and, and she, she had to, or we gravel. She went back to work full time in January 2019. Mm. Now, that was great. I was left to my own devices happily. Okay, I had a, a district nurse come every couple of days initially to tend my wounds, which was still oozing, and um, I had a carer come each morning to help me shower and charge. But then I was left to my own devices. So what does that – so are you leaving him in bed, Deborah, when you go off to work? No. Uh, yeah, sometimes. Yeah, yeah, probably. I mean, he could get into his chair. Okay. So I'd open the door. I mean, the, the glorious, glorious sight that the carers get each morning is me being sitting at my table looking at the papers in my underwear. That's it. Please get that on. That, that, yeah, exactly. In the shower, <laughs> off we go. Yeah. It's a nice image. Thank God this is a podcast. Um, <laughs> but, Everyone that's listening, he is dressed. So. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but... I found very early on, left to my own devices, which I thought was kind of awesome, um, I was a very clumsy amputee. I tended to drop a lot of things. Uh... From that I discovered that anything on the ground is dead to me. And I would drop all manner of things all times of the day and then 
And my poor believed wife would come in and, and, and after a hard corporate day and I said, no, no, before you tell me about your day, could you pick up that and that? And I think I left that in the backyard and, and that needs to be picked up too. And, and oh, how was your day? And then she'd go into the kitchen, my domain, and make dinner. Mm. I was a clumsy, stumpy, unhelpful, needy mess of a man. And we, we had a conversation in a couple of months, and I'm surprised she didn't leave me. Um, I, I had to do more. But that's a very hard conversation to have from Deborah's point of view because you'd, you've survived now. Yeah, yeah. I'm, and I'm you don't want to be like... A burden. But from Deborah's point of view, you don't... Like, I'm sure there's a realisation in regards to... And I'm speaking for you, Deborah. Um, in terms of you've now got limitations, but it's also you don't sort of want to be unfeeling in terms of what he's going th- through as well. So what was that conversation from your point of view? Um, well, you're correct. I mean, there was uh, the, the early months were very much about trying to be really, really patient with um, his demands and his wants and his needs. And, um, and I don't mean from a health perspective. I mean, you know. Sexually. <laughs> um, I'm ignoring that. Um, but there was just, you know, there was just so much. So I would be trying to, you know, you become a, a single person in the house. So you become the sole person and pair of hands around the house. So everything becomes your responsibility, you know, where you would use to split the, the, the load. So it's gone from teamwork um, to yeah, absolutely. So care. Somebody could be yeah. putting out rubbish while somebody's cooking, you know. Yeah. Or oh, no, rubbish balance. is always men's work. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but you keep forgetting at this point in the time, I was very needy. And, the, you know, there was that time. But when it came to the point with, I, I just said to him, you, you have to start taking on some of the responsibilities. You know, you can pay the bills. You can make arrangements for things to happen. Um you don't have to wait for me to be there while you do it. And part of that, I think, was rebuilding confidence in in his ability to do those things. Mm-hmm. Um, but we, you know, we still have this conversation sometimes. You could do more. Um, but that's me saying it now. <laughs> Um, <laughs> For those listening, uh, he just got whacked <laughs> on the shoulder. It's fine. That, that, that led to a, another um, uh, big step, a big discovery with regard to our uh, working relationship in, in as far as I had to do more, mm. but I've got no legs. I've got no arms. What do you mean? No. So you're doesn't... falling in the woe is me. Well, not falling in the woe is me. Excuse. But falling in the, well, how am I expected to pick that up? I've got no fucking arms and legs. So is there a difference between excuse and victim mode? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. There is just lazy, you know, it's going to be too hard for me to do that so you can do it. And my thought was, if I'm not here, what are you going to do? You have to learn to do it. So find a way. Which led to the next great discovery, which I talk about, which is, most people get Darwin's theory um, of of life wrong. It's not the which survival. is the evolution. Yeah, the evolution. <laughs> it's not the survival of the fittest. 
It's the survival of the adapters. It's those who adapt to their surroundings. That but isn't that the whole? Isn't that what the yeah, theory is? Yeah, a lot of people just say, "Oh, survival of the fittest." Oh, I know. I'm, I'm probably the least fit in this conversation at the moment, but I've learned to adapt to my surroundings. Mm. My surroundings being an armless and legless wheelchair-bound gimp. So, what happens when I drop something? I've got to work out how to pick it up. And so you, you go to that great store of, of, of wisdom and, and, and discovery, the wardrobe, mm. and you get a coat hanger and you fashion that coat hanger into a little hook that you go fishing for ham sandwiches and glasses and keys. Now, it's interesting that you're talking in that regards because before we hit the record button, you showed me your limbs and, and yep. you don't have any prosthetics. Prosthesis? Prosthetics I don't have any on. on. Yes. So... That was my question in regards to how are you grabbing a coat hanger to fashion it? Are you having teeth? <laughs> you're rubbing it. teeth and stumps. Okay, you're, he's rubbing stumps. his stumps together. Yeah. Um, look, I, is that the politically correct word to say stumps? Stumps. Yeah. Should I just offend every amputee in the no, world? No, no, no. Most most amputees, if they're a real amputee, have some form of stump somewhere. <laughs> um, no, no. So you you work out how you're going to do this. So right. I disassembled a coat hanger using my teeth and, and my stumps and a, and a bit of my, my my catchphrase is brute strength and stupidity right and that has seen me through life so have you ever had any of them fitted any oh, of the I, have, I have got a whole range of prosthetics that are okay rock and i've got bionic arms okay hooks oh, i've got hooks i left hospital hooks because i was waiting to get my bionic arms i've got bionic arms um with hands that have fingers that i can pick up things, do this, do that. I, I use them every night in the kitchen. Okay. So you're for. back cooking. I'm back cooking. I'm That's back good. in charge, babe. Um, Did you purposely I, cooked terribly for him so he'd have to learn how to to, to cook again? Deborah's <laughs> nodding. Uh, no, she's very good under instruction, which is the other problem. <laughs> I, I was very happy to instruct. Oh, <laughs> dangerous. Because <laughs> she wouldn't do it the way I did it. I mean, oh, my God, what are you doing? Um, so now I've got a set of legs. I, I, I can walk. Okay. The problem I've got at the moment, uh, rehab learning to walk uh, at Caulfield still, uh, got totally stuffed around by uh, COVID. They stopped our patients. So I haven't walked in 12 months. Because right. So then you've got to then go back to square one, building up that muscle mass. Uh, and then... no, well, yes and no. I mean, I was learning to walk, well, I had learned to walk, and I, I got to at least 200 metres. But I use crutches as well, though, which are connected to these stumps. And the problem with the that is... He's, he's doing his arms. Well, yeah, I'm doing my arms. But <laughs> once I get into my legs and I get my crutches on and I stand up from this wheelchair and I'm upright and I walk somewhere, mm. I can't do anything. Because my stumps are in these crutches, and if I take away the crutches, I fall over. And I'm not used to anybody with great legs, you know, falling over. I'm like Bambi on ice, and it's just uh, so I've walked that far. But what for? Have you looked into? And I don't know if they're appropriate for you, but they seem seems to be more from the veteran community that they have now. I think it was an Australian surgeon that developed um, the rods that go into. Yeah, now I've looked at that. It scares the crap out of me. Um, I can't do that with my arms because because length is strength. I've got two the two bones in my mm. lower arm, mm. and the rod is inserted into the 
major bit of bone. But your legs? Could you do it to your legs? Could do it to my legs, but I'd still have the same problem with regard to um, my the legs I've got fit over my stumps. Yeah. And they fit very nicely, and I've got uh, computer-driven knees. Uh, it's all very high-tech, all very expensive. Um and it's it, it's awesome, and I can walk. But my point is, once I get to where I'm walking to, why? What am I going to do next? I still need somebody following behind me in the wheelchair so I can sit down. The problem is, if I sit down in a normal seat while I'm on my legs, I can't get back up. But, well, the reason why I mentioned it is because I... Osteo integration. Well, I believe that they're easier to, because it's within your bone, it's, easier to walk in them so if it frees up your arms i mean i'm no, no, no expert it's a I'm balancing just... it's the the arm the walking with crutches is a balance thing and that's what i was going to be leading to with rehab is learning to walk hopefully upright like a man right without the need of crutches because it's just getting that balance thing happening right um i've never been a very good dancer i've never had very much coordination in that regard so I rely on crutches and that's fine and I can I was walking my daughter down the aisle. That was the goal, that was mm-hmm. the aim. And the bastard she was engaged to walked out. So I never got to do that. Well, that's probably a good thing though if he worked walked out before the wedding. Well, she he could have given her to her date. Thank God we've got another daughter. Oh good. Who's getting married yeah. in February. That's a good thing that we're not defined as women by who we marry anyway, so <laughs> No, but you're defined. I just got a thumbs up from Deb. Not their father can walk them down the aisle on fake legs. Come on. And the speech, the speech I had written, it was magnificent. <laughs> Wasted. Do you just insert the name for the other daughter? I, I, I did say to Zoe, my, my other daughter, do you mind if I just read the same speech because I put a lot of work into it? She wasn't happy. Now, I can see that you've got a fairy friend in the background. Is it an assistance dog? We didn't think we were challenged enough, so we got a puppy uh, for me to look after. It is a companion dog. Is it a COVID? A COVID purchase? Uh, no, no, no. pre-COVID. Uh, again, I was two months out of hospital, and we thought, well, let's have a challenge. Let's let John look after a puppy. Um, no, Zola is a companion dog. Unfortunately, I am her companion. <laughs> hey, darling. Oh, it looks like a poodle cross. Yeah. yeah. A um, golden retriever? doodle. Good doodle, is that what they're called? Groodle. Groodle. Groodles in Australia, or oh, my favourite now, I've learnt the other day, a curly retriever. Mm-hmm. Wow. She's beautiful. She, you're right, aren't you, babe? And she's currently licking um, John's What's arm. What's left of John's arm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just wanting to be involved in the podcast. <laughs> she's very sweet. So what's what's the reality like now in terms of life from where it was beforehand? John's back in the kitchen, much to Deborah's um, probably happiness considering he was very instructing. I'm sure doing a very good job of, of being an instructor. <laughs> Too good a job, I think. <laughs> oh, I'm glad she oversalted everything just so you'd get back in the kitchen, John. <laughs> Well, I don't know. What is life like now? Well, you're doing motivational speaking for one. Well, yeah, I've started a business, which is you know, very exciting. How do people find you for that? Uh, all the W's dot John Davey dot biz. 
D A Viz or Biz? Biz, B I Z. Okay. Um, or just look up empathy. I don't even know how to spell that bloody word. I know because it's a brand new word. Oh, there you go. What does it mean? Empathy. Uh, empathy towards amputees? Well, close. Oh. That's where I started. I invented the word. Okay. And I thought it was. Have you let Webster know? It was just a nice little play on empathy for amputees. It's really cute. Uh, in the last uh, 13 months, I, I've thought about it, and it's my first blog on my website. The actual meaning of empathy is the direct opposite of empathy because I'm sorry, unless you've got no arms and legs, you can't truly emphasize. <laughs> empathize. I can't even say the word. It's lost <laughs> to me. But you can't truly empathize with my position. Well, I think you can empathize. You just can't sympathize. Ah, no, no. And it doesn't mean sympathy either because sympathize usually means you're coming from a position where you feel sorry for that person. But it's also you can relate to that emotion, whereas empathy is you. Can you really? That's empathy. And it's like somebody who, and this has happened, saying, oh, yeah, I was in a moon boot for a week. I can imagine how you must feel. (laughs) Does that, do you just want to? I know you can't punch people. You'd probably fall out of the chair if you tried, but do you want to? I did. (laughs) I won't say who it was because. Yeah, don't. Um, And so, no, you you can't truly empathise. Sympathy I don't need. I certainly don't deserve. And it wasn't your fault. So you don't need to be sorry. Yes. What I want is empathy. And that is a connection purely to be acknowledged. It's akin to compassion. Okay, you don't know what I can or can't do. Mm. I don't think that you should. Don't assume, ask. Mm. Now, if you ask, I'll tell you if I need some help or I'll ask if I need some help. But, but do you asking, think that's just people coming from it from a caring, I'm trying to be, uh, they don't want to be awkward? They don't yeah. want to put you in a position where you have to ask for help? Well, no, quite possibly. But the, the beauty of empathy is that if you make that connection, if you are being compassionate, if you ask if I can help you with that or do you need a hand with that, we have the opportunity to form this connection and we discuss it. And we've had, I've had great chats up at the shops over the, my ability to pick up a zucchini. And I've learned about this poor old bloke's wife going into care because she's got Alzheimer's. And he has troubled himself with the onions because she used to always pick them. We spent 10 minutes having this chat about nothing, about everything, but it was nothing to do with empathy. It wasn't sympathy. It was this connection Human based on connection, mm-hmm. which is, in my book, trademarked, empathy. So you have trademarked it. I have trademarked it. Um, and, again, if you look at www.johndavy.biz and click on the blog, it's um, actually better defined there. Are you writing a book? No, no, we can't get past this argument with regard to what the title should be. Or empathy? Is that not the No, no, I was truly influenced while I was in hospital by those wonderful trained nurses who are phlebotomists. Mm -hmm. The blood takers? Yeah, the blood takers. And I had some brilliant phlebotomists, and I I think they are the unsung hero of the medical world. I just think you like saying the word. I do, I do, but I also married in beautifully with um, the title of my book, Just One Small Prick. <laughs> Deborah won't let me have that. <laughs> Not true, darling. 
Thank you, thank you very much. <laughs> Does that mean that you disagreed on the title of the book? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I'm a lazy, a lazy person, basically, and I've I, I had an offer to ghostwrite or be ghostwritten, and I wasn't ready, and I still aren't. Um, there are other people who have gone through exactly what I've been through. Mm-hmm. Uh, different diseases have led to septicemia, which have led to quadruple amputees, and they've written about their experiences. And um, I know about this because I've met all of them. Have I read their book? No, mm. because I'm living it. Well, uh, but you don't need to address it. Like I wouldn't be addressing it to the other amputees. I'd be addressing it to the lessons that you've learnt in regards to mindset and life and... Oh, well, that all comes out of the with the public speaking, which may in itself lead to, you know, as I develop mm. these these concepts or what have you, look, it, it might. But that's not the important thing to me at the moment. Mm. Um, public speaking, getting the message out. Well, getting paid for it. Um, <laughs> as you probably realise, dear listener, I, I will speak to a rock. And... <laughs> I have been doing this for three years and, um, again, somebody suggested, well, why don't you get paid for it? What a good idea. <laughs> so I'm not shy in speaking, but, yeah, I want to develop this side of it and mm. um, get my message across. I want to be more to Deborah around the house or... You know, we, we've worked out where and what and who and does and this and that, but there's, there's room for twinges of different things that could be done. Tweaks, I think, is the word I was looking for. So if John wants to be more to you, what are your hopes in regards to everything? Deborah? 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 Um, well, because you're on the same – you were looking and I was like, I want to make sure that you do. Yeah. For those that don't know, you're on the same mic, so we're trying to make sure that you don't step on each other. So. Oh, very easy for somebody with legs to say. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Inconsiderate pun. <laughs> we make them all the time. Uh, I, I think it is that, that shared partnership and that, that – shared life um, is pretty important mm. and you, you don't realise how hard it is um, until you've done it and, you know, I now don't empathise but sympathise with um, many single mothers or, you know, especially carers. We're, we're also in a different position, you know. A lot of um, quadrilateral lateral amputees um, are either earlier in their life where they've got young children and families to older people who are who are caring for each other into their old age. Um, we, we're kind of smack bang in the middle, which is... We have and... It's just redefining. Uh, yeah, it's a, our new reality is what it is. Mm. We are redefining our life because of that, but we are still independent. We still are doing all the things we want to do at this stage mm-hmm. and reimagining how to do the things that we want to do in the future. Um, the seven say, stages. There, there are, Sorry, go. There, there are some things I, I know I can't do. Mm. I will never run a marathon. Okay. You could wheel it. 
Well, I, I could wheel. Yeah, except my my power chair runs out at twenty k twenty five. I am awful at paper rock scissors. It, it's always rock. You know, so there, there are things I just can't do, and so I don't concentrate on that. Now, what we're in a position, and we're in a very fortunate position in our lives because we are independent, we are still young enough, and we don't have those other concerns to sit back and say, well, what is our new reality? How do we redefine that? And what are some of the things that we don't think we necessarily could do? Or why don't we work out how we can do it? It Was that part of the seven stages of of grief that you went through? Was it not just mourning the loss of the limbs? Was it the loss of that life that you had beforehand? And then that was a conscious, let's mourn it so we then can move on to the new reality. Okay. Um, we didn't know what was in store. But you knew that it was going to be different. Uh, we knew it was going to be yeah. different. This yeah. is our new reality. You know, you, you, your, your husband is much shorter. Still attractive, but much shorter. <laughs> um, how am I going to deal with that thing, Deborah? And <laughs> we didn't know what was in store. Yeah. We're, but, again, we're ready for that next challenge. How tall were you before this happened? Six one in heels. Six one in heels. Six, so just on a Deborah. Saturday night, then you're 6'1". No, no, 6'3 in Deborah's Hills. <laughs> so that means that no more getting anything down from a top shelf for you. Well, Deborah. my wheelchair actually does go up. Oh, you've got a standing wheelchair? Not a standing wheelchair, but a, a cocktail hour wheelchair where okay. I can actually raise myself to head height for That's other people. Good. So I'm, I'm pretty independent at the shops Yeah, with my zucchinis. <laughs> but um, Take it in glass. Don't give me too much glass. Right. To put it anyway. um, I'm less clumsy than I was, but I just put that down to, to, to life. Now that I've got bionic arms that I can actually reach down and pick things up, I, I don't mm. tend to drop things. Mm. <laughs> Why don't you have them on now? Is it just that you, you want to give your stumps a rest or is it a they're uncomfortable no. to wear? No, and Deborah's got to get past this. My arms, like my legs, to a certain extent, are tools. Mm. Okay. Do you walk around the house with a hammer in your hand waiting for a nail to jump out? No, but I've got a hand that I can do other things with. You don't. Yeah, no, no. But you've got also the ability when you see a nail, you go to the shed, you get your hammer, you bang the nail in, you put the hammer back in the shed. Right. Right. My arms, my bionics are tools, and I put them on when I need them. Right. Okay. So that's an interesting concept because to therefore you have to be conscious in regards to what you want to do and where do you want to go. Whereas those that yeah. like for me it would be an unconscious thing to grab a glass of water and just take a take a drink. But you've got to go. Oh, get no, your... no. See, I, I can still pick up glasses of water. I can still. I do eighty percent of the day. I do it stumpily. Okay. And very nicely. Thank you. But. There are some times when I need to hold a knife, when I need to be able to stir a pan. There are things when I need to pick things out of the oven or what have you. So I go and get my kitchen tools. Right. This and stage, my bionic arm. I think it's important to, to for the listeners that can't see John. The amputee for the legs were above the knee, but you're below the elbow in terms of for the arms. Yeah, they they took me off just above the wrists. Yeah. So you've still you can touch them together and sort of pick things up that way is what you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Can't pick my ears though. Oh, that's a problem. Mm. <laughs> John just tried to put his stump in his ear. 
And for my next trip. <laughs> you, it's very obvious that you use a lot of humour, John, to get through the reality of the situation now, that, that that change. Is that been a constant even in hospital, Deborah, that you sort of found that he was doing or is that a sort of a learned thing? Oh, no, John's, John's always been mad <laughs> and hilarious. Um, so, in fact, it, it's, I mean, it has been a godsend, you know. It, Love. It, um, it has buoyed us in certain times. Yeah. But we also just make fun of things, you know. Like if he tells me he can't do it because he hasn't got arms and legs, it's just, you know, that's a really old story now, darling. Or, you know, do we want to step out? Oh, no, you can't. Ha, ha, ha. Mm. Um, so, you know, it's just facing up to it. Um, and, yeah, I guess having laughter is the best medicine, huh? This is true. Well, no, I, I prefer those you know, Yeah, the ketamine. Yeah, mm. <laughs> but, um, uh, look, if it doesn't kill you, it doesn't kill you. Um, I can understand. Well, actually, no, I don't understand why a significant event that might affect your ability to walk or what have you necessarily need to change your mindset, the person you are. Sure, I don't collect shoes anymore. You know, I used to collect shoes and watches. Right. Oh, my God. <laughs> I've, uh, why? But so that hasn't changed the, the person I am. It's changed certain aspects of the way in which I live my life. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, I'm very lucky in as far as I didn't lose any of what they would call my mental acumen. Um, that hadn't changed. Okay, and yes, before all of this, before the grumpy arsehole stage, um, humour was my my companion. That's not going to change. And i got to tell you, having no legs and arms does lead to some really, really awkward moments for people who meet you. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> the first thing they say at the shop is, I'll lend you a hand. Mm. <laughs> Do you just enjoy making people feel awkward? <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Which is fun. And again, that leads to the I'm evil because I am steer away from the evil gimp. He is very nice to children, though. So, what we've generally. Does that sound Sorry. In the nicest way. So, children are the funniest. Sorry. Children are the funniest when it comes to seeing John. Is that because they're coming from it from a very genuine question base rather than a. Yeah. Yeah. Jaws drop open. Sometimes there's fear. Um, sometimes there's lots of mummy, mummy. That man's got no legs. You know, um, we have to point out that he hasn't got arms either. You know, so be observant, kid. Yeah. <laughs> so there have been times when we've seen children who genuinely look distressed, where we will stop and talk to the parent and allow get the permission to talk to the child to help them understand that it's. You know, they're not going to go home and have nightmares or worry about that strange man at the shops who had no arms and legs. Let's talk about what the reason is. And yes, I haven't got them. And, you know, this is I what I didn't eat enough greens, little girl. <laughs> I remember as a child, I went up and visited my grandparents up in Queensland at the time. And uh, up in Queensland, as you'd know, they've got the, um, the estuaries and stuff you can go swim in. And we were 
going and swimming, my brother and I, and this lady came down and she sat on the beach and she just took off her prosthetic and I was sitting on the beach probably playing the sand and I had a conversation with her around, you know, but it was a genuine, I don't know, I was probably six or something. And I was like, what happened to your leg? And I remember her telling me the story. She lost it in a car accident and stuff. And I was asked her how you put it on. And it was such a genuine um, moment. And she was very gracious in regards to that. I think because I wasn't scared and I was coming from it from a curiosity point of thing. My grandparents probably didn't realise I was having the conversation to rush over. And it was the 80s anyway. People were a little bit less <laughs> PC then. But I think it's important to have those conversations to understand that people do look different and there's nothing wrong with that, you know. Mm. Yeah. And from kids it's often how do you wipe your bottom and how do you feed yourself? (laughs) With a stick and a fork. (laughs) In that order, can I add? Oh, my goodness. I don't know where to go from here, I think. (laughs) where we started. (laughs) Pretty much. Your first threesome. Well, yes, this is true. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's been an absolute pleasure. Um, if you want to have John come and speak, and I'm sure – do you do public speaking as well, Deborah? No, should, I do not. Should you be doing it? Well, to answer a question about whether she does public speaking, she shook her head and said nothing. <laughs> yes. I think that answers that question. <laughs> Your website again, John Davies. Davey. D-A-V-E-Y, no S, John Davey dot, dot biz, B-I-Z. Are you on the socials as well? Empathy, Resilience and Me. Am I on social? Oh, God. I know. I'm old. I know, so am I. I think, is LinkedIn a social? Yes. yes. Oh, I am then. Okay, I'll, I'll add it to the show notes. Thanks, guys. Thanks. Pleasure speaking with you. Thank you. Have a nice evening. Thanks for taking a moment to listen, everyone. We hope this episode inspired you as much as it did us. If you know somebody who also needs a little inspiration, then please share this podcast with them. Also, don't forget to subscribe on your fave podcast app and rate and review us because that helps inspire us to keep making them. 